When tumors in cancer cells arise, we often consider them very different from the rest of our body, something alien or foreign. But when it comes to the immune system, these differences are often not pronounced enough or strong enough to result in the killing of cancer. Welcome to the Cell Therapy Podcast by Kite Gilead. I'm your host, Mike Barnkop, and in the following episode, I had the pleasure of talking to two scientists, Professor Johanna Olveus and Dr. Morten Milik Nilsson, both from the University of Oslo, about what minute differences are present in cancer cells and how we can re-educate the immune system to recognize these tiny differences using T-cell receptors or TCR-based therapies. For this episode, we had some technical difficulties, and I had a sore throat, so the sound is a bit off, but do keep listening. Johanna and Morten had some very interesting takes on T-cell-based therapies. Before we get started, I'd, li I'd like to give a, a quick introduction to you both. Professor Olveros got her medical degree in 1992 in Bergen, Norway, finished her PhD partly at BD in California and partly at the University of Bergen, went back to Norway and did specialty training in immunology and transfusion medicine while building up her research group at the same time, focusing on antigen presentation and subsequently on cancer immunotherapy. And currently, uh, Professor Olveros is head of the Department of Cancer Immunology at the Institute of Cancer Research, where you also lead a highly successful research group focusing on developing therapeutic TCRs against cancer. And Dr. Morten Milik Nilsson is a researcher in Professor Olveus' group, where he did his PhD at the University of Copenhagen, followed by a postdoc first in Copenhagen, and then moved to sunny California for a postdoc at the Scripps Institute in La Jolla. And again, before moving back to Oslo to join uh, Johanna's group. And thank you both for being on the show. And can I just ask, you, you both moved to Norway from California. What's so great about Norway? The women. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my wife is Norwegian. So, so I moved here uh, basically because uh, my postdoc time was up in the U.S., as you said, uh, sunny California, San Diego. And then um, at that point, it was try, time to try something new and exciting. So instead of moving back to Copenhagen and continuing in the group that I've been in previously, I thought, why not uh, go to Norway and follow my, my wife there, basically? Then I, and I found, uh, found a position in Johannes. And uh, my story was that uh, we moved, and my husband and I, from Bergen, where we had grown up. And after one year in California, we'd had more sunshine than the rest of our lives in Bergen altogether. So that made us decide that when we were moving back to Norway, we would actually move to the Oslo area rather than to Bergen. Although I have to say that I miss the mountains in Bergen a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Norway is also incredibly beautiful, so I can definitely understand why you would move there. So, And so today we're going to talk about uh, new antigens and TCR-based therapies. And I think we should start off uh, giving a bit of background to these subjects. So first off, I was hoping you could tell me a bit about what new antigens are. An antigen, first of all, is a molecule that can result in an immune response from either B cells or T cells. In order to understand what new antigens are, we need to understand how T-cells work. And the primary role of T-cells is to cure us from infections. And T-cells are capable of doing that by getting information about what is going on inside the cells. So if a cell, for instance, is infected by a virus, let's say the flu virus, the T-cell will get information about that. This happens because all our proteins in the cells are continuously degraded in what we can compare with a garbage disposal. And pieces of this garbage will be shown on the outside. And these pieces are then parts of proteins, protein fragments, what we also call peptides. So if a cell is infected by the flu virus, the viral peptides will be shown on the outside. And then the T cells can recognize those peptides as foreign and different from our own normal peptides. And when they see something as foreign, they can attack the cell that has these foreign peptides and then kill those cells. And this is how they can cure us from the flu. So what about the cancer cells? Cancer cells have DNA mutations. That's actually necessary for them to be cancer cells. They have to have DNA damage and mutations. And these mutations cause altered proteins. They generate altered proteins that are shown also on the surface of the cells, of the cancer cells, and that can be recognized as foreign by the T cells. And this is what people 
mostly mean when they talk about new antigens. It's these foreign peptides that are generated by the mutations. And then the T cells can, in best case, recognize these foreign peptides and kill the cancer cells. So in that way, we can compare new antigens with red flags that make the T cells come to the tumor and make them kill the cancer cells. Thanks. I, I think that's great. Are all the new antigens, are they also always start to sort of rise from mutations in the cancer cells? Or are some cancers sort of, I know some cancers are sort of initiated by viruses, for example. Are those thought to be sort of good new antigenic targets as well? Absolutely. What most people think about when they talk about new antigens is then peptides encoded by DNA mutations. But as you correctly point out, there are peptides also from viruses that cause cancer, such as papillomavirus, for instance, that can definitely be seen as foreign antigens. And recent years, it has become clear that only around 1% to 2% of the mutations that are in a tumor are spontaneously recognized by the patient's own T cells. So it's actually a very small fraction of the tumor of the mutations that are in the tumor that are recognized. And it's also become clear that there are other foreign antigens that can be recognized by the T cells. And, and this can be, for instance, um, splice variants, meaning RNA that is then spliced in unusual ways, creating foreign antigens that can then be seen by the T cells. That's one example. And an additional example can actually be dysfunctional protein translation in the cancer cells. So this might in situations of, for instance, um, starvation, uh, where you have a lack of certain amino acids like tryptophan, that can cause altered proteins that can then be seen as foreign by the T cells. I think that's really interesting. Are some tumor types or some subtypes of tumors, are they sort of more prone to generate neoantigens? I mean, I guess that sounds like tumors in certain environments would actually be more immunogenic. Yeah, so I mean, it's very interesting, this new field that actually the metabolic uh, situation might affect what type of new antigens are shown. And this field is really in its infancy. So um, pioneering work by the groups of Jardena Samuels at the Weizmann Institute and Robin Agami at the Netherlands Cancer Institute uh, led to the discovery of such aberrant peptides that are then generated in a situation of tryptophan depletion. So I think we will see a lot more in that field. And, and what is actually encouraging is that some of these new types of, of new antigens caused by either spice variants or by dysfunctional protein translation, they can be shared and might be shared to a higher degree than DNA mutations because 99% of DNA mutations are actually unique to that particular tumor and patient. So only 1% is shared. So when you say shared, you mean between the entire like across cancer cells within the patient or between sort of populations of, of patient groups? So then I mean shared between patients and that can be either across cancer types or within the same cancer type. Yeah. Okay. So we have sort of a repertoire of new antigens and of course the, the tumor still grows. So how can we, I guess the question is how can we utilize these antigens and, and how can they be targeted? There are, there are definitely different ways, several ways that we can go about that, about mounting the patient's own immune system against uh, the cancer cells. Uh, and enable them to recognize these potential, uh, these new antigens that are presented on the surface of the cancer cells on MHC-class molecules, MHC-class 1 molecules. So one way would be uh, checkpoint inhibition. So basically the use of uh, drugs or antibodies that, uh, that block these inhibitory receptors that are present on the surface of the, pa the patient's uh, T cells. So what, what many, many uh, you know, uh, different types of cancers, they do that they make use of these uh, the ligands for these inhibitory receptors, they upregulate, so thereby making the, the T cells inresponsive to the cancer, even though they, they might actually recognize the cancer cells. One way of you know, abolishing that is using these checkpoint inhibitors to basically block that interaction. So in a, you know, in a popular way of saying it is that we unleash the breaks of the patient's own immune system. Another way could, of course, also be that you could vaccinate. Now, the vaccination strategy, especially for new antigens, that would be a very private approach. So as Johanna just mentioned, you know, 99% of the new, new antigens are going to be private. But so to do that, you would need to, first of all, sequence the tumor to identify the new antigens. And then you would do in silico predictions to find the best candidates to build into your vaccine. And the vaccine could then either be administered as a peptide vaccine, where, you, where, we, where we synthesize the actual epitopes or antigens that we think that we could raise an immune response towards, 
or we can also make a mini gene that encodes a string of these epitopes or antigens and deliver it via RNA vaccines. As most people know, the of RNA vaccines now based on COVID, right? So, um, so those are examples. And then, of course, we have TILS, tumor infantry lymphocytes, uh, which has been pioneered by the lab of Stephen Rosenberg at the NIH. So there, the idea is that uh, in many solid tumors, we actually find, you know, uh, not, not, not in all, but in what we call hot tumors, we actually find a decent amount of, of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes or TILs. So the T cells, they actually, they get into the solid tumors, but they don't destroy the, the tumor, right? They just sit there. So the idea was that since they get there, they might be able to actually react to it, but then they're inhibited within the, this, you know, inhibitory environment. So uh, one way of, of, of taking them out of that is that you actually resect the tumor or you take a biopsy of the tumor. And you then uh, grow the, these tills up in the lab to great, great numbers, great billions of cells. And then you can reinfuse them into the patient. The idea is now that, you know, now you've taken them away from the inhibitory environment and they can now, you've given, and then you've given them a chance to proliferate and they can now have a fair chance of recognizing the, the cancers and, and kill. And then I think, lastly but not leastly, you know, this is what we work on in, in Johanna's group is this, you know, a gene therapy, basically TCR gene therapy, right? I, it's important also to say that, you know, in terms of I've been discussing a few therapeutic approaches now, but in most cases the patient's own immune system is is actually insufficient in, you know, clearing or like curing the patient. You know, we can have a, an effect for sure, but the patients are rarely cured, and they, and they end up relapsing many of them. To sort of circumvent that is this idea of or the concept of gene therapy, where we take the patient's own uh, T cells out of the body. Uh, this can be, this could be from the tumor, but we don't need to. We can take it from the blood, and then we re-educate it outside of the body in the lab, where we reintroduce a T cell receptor that we know have the capability of recognizing a new antigen that is, that is present in the patient's tumor. So, and then after growing those cells up to also great amounts, we reinfuse them, and then and now the patient's own immune cells actually have the capability of recognizing the cancer cells specifically because of that new unique receptor that we put into them outside of the, the body. And thank you, Morten. That was, I think that was a really nice overview of, of different sort of ways to really utilize these uh, these new antigens. And as you said, your group, you're really focused in on sort of CCR-based based therapies. And just as sort of a quick question, do they need to be made sort of for each individual patients or, or are there ways to, to sort of use these, uh, these shared or public antigens as you were talking about? So there are certainly groups that have pursued generating personalized T-cell receptors for each patient. There was a clinical trial published in Nature earlier this year where they treated cancer patients with up to three different personalized TCRs per patient. Really, I must say, an impressive effort, both technologically and logistically. Out of 187 patients that were included in the study, only 16 ended up being treated, saying something about the time and efforts needed to complete the treatment. So, and then also the, the clinical responses were very modest. And uh, the authors discussed that uh, one important reason for this could be low affinity of the TCRs that they actually isolated. An attractive alternative would be to target instead shared antigens encoded by recurrent mutations. This is also what you can call public antigens. But it has proven quite challenging to identify good TCRs that recognize uh, shared antigens from patients. So uh, in this regard, our group has chosen a different path. We are rather using healthy donor T cells to identify T cell receptors that can recognize shared new antigens. Okay, yeah, and I think that's a really nice segue into how you actually identify these sort of anti-cancer TCRs. And Morten, I'm wondering if you could sort of introduce us to those and how you do it. Definitely. So uh, just to sort of to put a historic perspective on it first, uh, would then be to, you know, that the, uh, it used to be, and, and it not only used to be, but it still is in many labs, that, that mainly people are working with, with these tills, right? The idea being that if, if they make it in there, they, they must be able to do something. But as Johanna just, uh, you know, as we discussed, the, the vast majority of them uh, don't have the capability of recognizing uh, the new antigens that are present in there. But still, the historic approach has been to uh, to take the, the tills out and uh, and cultivate them in vivo, expand them, and then test reactivity towards uh, new antigens. Johanna just says we uh, we have taken a different approach in the lab, and that uh, that you know is built on uh, work that was done actually before I joined the lab, so I can take no credit for that. But in 2016, at least, the lab, together with uh, our collaborator Hans Schumacher at uh, NKI, published a paper in, uh, in Science where we showed that. Uh, Actually, uh, naive CD8 T cells from healthy donors are much more capable of recognizing new antigens than if you compare them to the tumor pa or the cancer patient's own tills. 
this was in melanoma. So I think, the, correct me if I'm wrong, Johanna, but I do. I think we saw a, a five-fold increase in the recognition of, or identification of, of TCRs capable of recognizing new new antigens, if you looked in the naive compartment uh, of healthy donors. Absolutely, Morton. We actually, in the science paper, we just showed that healthy donor T-cells could recognize, as you point out, up to fivefold more uh, new antigens as compared with the patient's own tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. And then in the follow-up paper, in Nature Protocols, we demonstrated that this was actually, this reactivity was co confined to the naive T-cell compartment. And if we enriched for the naive T-cells, that's where we could identify all the new antigen reactive T-cells. So when you say five-fold more, is, 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 that me, is that because they're able to kill five times as many cancer cells, or are they sort of more broadly reactive? No, it's more the it's more five-fold more new antigens were actually recognized so that we could identify T-cells that recognize new antigens that were not recognized by the patient's own tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. that's really interesting. So naive T cells seem to have a propensity. They're, they're sort of more able to sort of find these neurogenes, basically. So uh, naive T cells, just to uh, take a step back, right? They they are naive because they have never been exposed to the antigen that they recognize. Uh, they're highly capable of of being activated. They are, of course, they're not exhausted because they have never been activated before. So that of course gives them a, an advantage. And then I know we talked about checkpoint inhibition and all, and uh, but you also have to think about. I think at least TILS would compare with that. You know, I think if you look at it, it makes sense that most of them they don't do anything because if the majority of them were doing something, I think that then the tumors would probably never have evolved. They would have probably been killed to begin with. So I think looking at the nature compartment uh, definitely makes sense to us. And as Johanna mentioned, the Nature Protocol paper from 2019 clearly shows that it has to be within the naive CD8 T cell compartment. And that's for the healthy donors because they have never seen these uh, new antigens before. And that's, you have a much, much bigger repertoire of T cell receptors to choose from in the naive repertoire as compared to the memory repertoire. So just to, just to understand this completely, so you identify new antigen, and I guess we'll talk about some of the targets you found later on, and then you expose that to healthy donors T cell, basically, these naive T cells from, from healthy donors. And then you sort of let them do the hard work of coming up with a good TCR that has strong binding to the peptide. Is, is that correctly understood? Absolutely, yes. Okay, great. Have you tried this method with sort of every every new engine you can think of or, or and can, can this method be used to, to any sort of mutated protein that you are what are sort of the limitations here so i think it would be great if we could use this method for any mutated protein but as johanna also mentioned earlier um, that it's actually if you look at at least if you look within the the till compartment it's only about one to two percent of the of the you know potential neo antigens that are actually recognized uh, by the by the tills and if we then say okay if we look in the naive CD8 T cell compartment, we can times that by five. Then at best, we're at, at 10%. So sadly not. It, it would have been great if we could have targeted all mutated proteins that way, this way, but that is not the case. And I think, uh, at least we think one of the reasons for that is that, you know, even though they're mutated, these antigens that are presented, potentially presented on MHC molecules, they might look too much like self meaning that, you know, we don't have the T-cell repertoire to recognize them due to negative selection in the thymus. So the vast majority are simply not immunogenic. Just like Morton says, it's very important to realize the limitations we have in terms of immunogenicity here, that many of these mutations lead to only one amino acid difference. And although this certainly can, in many cases, lead to T-cell recognition, in, in many cases, is also not sufficient to be recognized by a T-cell as foreign. So, and also then because of the negative depletion, just to explain that, this is the education that our T-cells is undergoing in the thymus whereby T-cells recognizing our self-antigens are removed, at least those recognizing self-antigens with high affinity, or because otherwise we would all have autoimmunity. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, thanks for this really nice introduction. I would like to uh, do sort of a dive into one of your recent uh, papers. It was a uh, Nature Biotech paper, uh, with that, which has this very clear title, I think, T-cells targeted to TDT uh, kill leukemic lymphoblasts while sparing normal lymphocytes. And uh, as always, we'll link to the papers that we discussed in the show in the show notes. But 
I was hoping, um, I think this paper is a really nice way of sort of tying together the things we've been talking about uh, so far. Can, can you tell me a bit about what TDT is and, and, and why you thought to sort of use these approaches to, to target this protein? Yeah, so the idea to targeting TDT actually came up, I would say, more than 15 years ago. I had a very short career in the pathology department. <laughs> And one of the um, strategies that was used there to diagnose uh, leukemia was actually to initially do a staining with either antibodies recognizing TDT, which stands for terminal deoxynucleotidyl transferase, so a long and difficult uh, name, or stain with antibodies that react to myeloperoxidase. So if leukemia cells coming from newly diagnosed uh, patient were stained uh, with anti-TDT, they would go to the panel that would then dissect or decipher what type of leukemia this was using the, the lymphoid panel. And if they were stained with MPO, they would be stained with um, a panel of antibodies that could discriminate between various myeloid malignancies. So then I realized that TDT was highly expressed in uh, leukemia cells of the lymphoid type. So that was kind of the start that I thought, oh, it would be fantastic if one could target this molecule because it's overexpressed in 80 to 90 percent of acute lymphoblastic leukemias. And then it was many years in between. And we had then this idea that um, we wanted to target TDT, but how to go about it. And the limitation here is exactly the negative selection that we were talking about just, just a few seconds ago, because TDT is a self-antigen or self-protein rather. So this is a normal protein and the function of TDT is to generate diversity in our T-cell receptor and B-cell receptor repertoires. Because it is a self-protein, it's then actually not possible to find T-cell receptors that recognize TDT in, in you and me, say if we're looking in healthy donors. So we would have to do a trick in order to identify T-cell receptors that can recognize TDT with high affinity. And then the idea came from my work in transplantation immunology. I was working at Rikshospitale with transplantation immunology. And then I realized, of course, I got knowledge about these very strong immune responses that can happen in uh, patients who have been transplanted with, with an organ. So let's say kidney transplantation. There's usually a mismatch in HLA type between the donor and the recipient, quite large mismatch in HLA. And still, this is usually okay, as long as the patient is on uh, immunosuppressive medication for the rest of their lives, actually. But if then mis this medication is stopped, well, then the transplanted organ will be rejected in quite short time by the T cells of the, the patient. And this shows how strong an immune response this is. And if cancer develops in the transplanted organ, and this, this can happen throughout the history, it happens from time to time, then it's usually also sufficient to stop the immunosuppressive medication for also the cancer cells to be rejected. And this happens even if the cancer cells have metastasized outside of the transplanted organ. So that was really an inspiration for me, that what if we could use this mechanism of transplant rejection and focus it on specific proteins, then we could have a fantastic weapon to, to reject cell type specific molecules, like for instance, CDT. So that was a long introduction. Can I just say thank you so much for telling that story? Because I think it's it's so interesting to hear about sort of how an idea develops and how you actually now are able to sort of use that knowledge, right? So thanks for sharing that. Well, it was really a great inspiration, actually. And, and then, uh, but then, as always, it takes really skilled scientists in the lab to translate a good idea into to, uh, concrete results. And, and that's where Muhammad Ali and Irini Giannacopolo, uh, who were very talented PhD students in my group, Ali has now gone on to continue his medical career. And uh, Irini is now a postdoc in the lab, just to say that. Anyway, they identify then T cell receptors that can recognize peptides from TDT by exploiting this mechanism of transplant rejection, or in immunology, we would say alloreactivity. So the peptides from TDT would be combined with thorin HLA molecules and introduced this way to the T cells from a healthy donor. And thereby we've got T cell receptors that have really high affinity for, uh, or peptide sensitivity, I should rather say, for, for the TDT peptides. So you, you're making minute changes to TDT to make the T, T cells able to see it, or are these changes that happen sort of naturally in the cancer? 
So the TDT is actually a natural, normal peptide sequence. There is no change to that uh, peptide. So it's a self-peptide presented on foreign HLA rather than what normally is the case that you have a foreign peptide, such as a new antigen or a viral antigen, presented on self-HLA. So we just flip what is foreign here. That's quick. Okay. And I think you gave a, I, I listened to a talk, you gave a really nice talk at, at DTU at a conference there this early this year. And you ha I think you had this really interesting point about TDT is translucently expressed in in sort of healthy lymphocytes um, as part of the VDA rearrangement of T cells and B cells, as you say, um, but actually in cancer cells, it's more, it's, it's sort of more permanently expressed. And so that, that makes it additionally, I think, a really nice target. Exactly. So, I mean, that, that is, of course, very important because if it had been widely expressed in normal cells, we would have side effects from it. So in contrast to, for instance, CD19 or CD20 that are therapeutic targets that are present throughout the differentiation, TDT is only expressed transiently during normal differentiation. And this is what allows it also to be a target also in T-cell leukemias, actually. Because we can live without normal B-cells for years, but we cannot live without normal T-cells for years. And this is also why it has proven very difficult to identify CARs that recognize uh, targets on T cells that can be safely used in the clinic. Because if you, if you target a cell type specific marker for T cells, so something that would be comparable to CD19 on B cells, well, then you would also deplete all normal T cells. Whereas TDT is only transiently expressed and it's not expressed on the hematopoietic stem cells. It's also not expressed on naive and mature T and B cells in, in the periphery. Yeah, I think I think that's really clever. So you in the paper you elegantly show that uh, these uh, TDT specific TCRs are able to kill a, a number of leukemic cell lines, ALL cell lines that that express TDT naturally, or when you sort of transfect them with TDT. And you do these experiments sort of both in vitro and in vivo. And I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about what type of efficacy you guys are going after here, and and how you sort of like judge what a good TCR is. Yeah, I think it's hard to say exactly based on what type of efficacy we're going after, but what I can say is that you know based on the number of tcrs that we have tested in the lab over the the years i think it's a it's safe to say that you know we need to see rapid and actually close to complete killing in vitro fairly fast to see any sort of like meaningful significant effect in vivo if it doesn't happen fast in vitro it, it doesn't happen that much in vivo at all that's a really good that's a really good point i think so in the paper i, I think you I, this comes a bit back to what Johanna was saying, but you, you tested TCR both against patient-derived PBMCs, which include both cancer cells and then like healthy T and B cells as well. Can you tell a bit about what these experiments show? Definitely. All in all, we tested uh, 12 uh, ALL patients, uh, nine were BALL and uh, three were TALL. Basically, these patient-derived uh, uh, tumor cells or leukemias, they were uh, subjected to T-cells that were had re that have been engineered to express this uh, TDT-specific TCRs. And what we could see is that actually, on an average, about 97% of the leukemic cells, they were eliminated throughout all the patients. And then, uh, as Johanna, as you said, as Johanna also mentioned, uh, you know, um, TDT is, uh, is transitly expressed. And uh, what we actually found in the paper was that both healthy B and T cells, they were basically unaffected. So they were, they were not killed at all by these transduced T cells. So only specifically killing off the leukemic cells. And on top of that, we also showed that it's very specific, not, you know, to, not only to TDT, but also A2. Because if you take a, a patient, leukemic a patient that, you know, is, is A2 negative or and TDT positive, there was no killing of the leukemic cells, showing that it's very specific for the HLA-A2. And otherwise, if you take in, uh, if you had patient cells that were A2 positive but TDT negative, again, we didn't see any type of, of killing of the leukemic cells, except if we peptide loaded with the TDT epitopes. Just one uh, additional thing to what Morten has mentioned now is that we also then used a humanized mouse model where we actually had mice that uh, developed normal human hematopoiesis from CD34 positive cells that were engrafted. And then we took autologous T cells from these mice and transduced them then with a T cell receptor. So we engineered them with a T cell receptor. And then we treated those mice with a TDT TCR T cells to see whether there would be any toxicity to thymopoiesis and to normal 
hematopoiesis in general. And we couldn't detect that. So we were really actually happy about that. And, and these were huge efforts that we did together with the groups of Stenerik Jakobsen and Patavol. Actually, all the in vivo experiments were done in collaboration with them. It's uh, been a wonderful collaboration ongoing for years. And they are really experts on normal and malignant hematopoiesis. So that has been a beautiful, I would say, complementarity to the two groups working on this product together. That sounds like an incredible amount of work, actually. But I guess it sh it shows that with these therapies, we need, really need to put in a lot of effort to make sure that they're safe, right? Just a few weeks ago, you, you, you uh, your group also published this other uh, very interesting paper where you use similar methods. But now uh, you target the three, which has a very specific mutation in which uh, I think a lot of people will know is, is sort of closely associated with, with AML. Can you tell us a bit about how you came up with targeting FLT3? Sure. FLT3, first of all, is a cytokine receptor that is important for normal differentiation and survival of hematopoietic cells. So it plays an important role. Then there are two groups of mutations that are recurrent in uh, AML. One is uh, so-called uh, internal tandem duplications, where you get insertions of multiple copies of parts of the gene. The other group of mutations is in the tyrosine kinase domain, and these are then point mutations, most frequently occurring then in the D835 position. So the internal tandem duplications cannot really be targeted with T-cell receptor because that could be used in many patients at least, because the length of this insertion is variable. So you don't get the same neoadjuvant in different patients. In contrast, and the point mutation is actually usually recurrent. It's in a subgroup of AML patients, obviously, but uh, but this mutation where you get D835Y, so a tyrosine here is by far the most frequent one. So um, we already knew that FLT3 was a good therapeutic target because uh, AML patients are treated with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and they are effective at keeping the disease down for a certain time, but then all the patients relapse actually from these inhibitors. So we thought that it would be a good target to go after with a T-cell receptor, and this was the start of the project. And again, it was quite challenging actually to identify T-cell receptors, but we thought it was a good target from that for that reason. So you, using your your method, you screened T cells from from 16 healthy donors, if I understood the paper correct, and you found uh, out of those 16, you found one TCR that could bind for three, which has this specific mutation. But I guess that's enough, right? When you do it this way, you just need one. That's exactly right, and uh, this is really the needle in a haystack. Term is really fits fitting here, but one is enough, as you say, if it's uh, an efficient one. And then you really, I, I was reading this paper, and you know, sometimes you read a paper like, oh yeah. I can you can I could do this and then you just start reading more and more and you're like you get more and more depressed because <laughs> because the models become more and more advanced and you guys really really went to town here and you you tested this TCR in like these four different very elegant uh, PDX models with AML I almost want to ask you why you tested it so thoroughly but I think I think that's because you're a good scientist but can you tell us a bit about the models and sort of why you put all this effort into it so first of all there is a general lack in the field of testing of neoadjuvant reactive TCRs and demonstrating efficacy in disease-relevant models. So that was kind of the, the beginning. We really wanted to show that they could make a difference. And leukemia is a good model disease in that regard because you can get more, I think, disease-relevant information from PDX models and for many other cancers, actually. One of the most important characteristics that it is important to evaluate in such a model is the degree to which the engineered T cells can actually target the leukemia propagating cells. And that's where we had this, again, excellent collaboration with uh, Stenerk Jakobsen and Petter Woll at Karolinska Institute and PhD students Madeleine Lehander and Stina Wieden-Kulleton also who did an, an amazing job together with Irini Janakopoulou in, in my group. So we really wanted to target the leukemia propagating cells, and that was one of the models. So maybe I'll start with that one, because the challenge is if you want to, to look at efficacy of targeting of cells that have characteristics of leukemia stem cells, you need to have long-term follow-up. Now, that is not possible in a model where you have human T cells, 
because the T cells will, after a while, attack. Actually, both the, the, the leukemia will with alloreactivity, and the T cells will also attack the mice due to xenoreactivity. So we had to get around that somehow. And then we found a solution, which was that we would, rather than keeping the T cells in the mice for a long time, we would actually treat the patient leukemia cells in cell culture, so in vitro, for 48 hours before transplanting the co-cultures into the mice. So we then treated them with T cells that were engineered with the, the FLA3-TCR, and then we also treated them, of course, with T cells engineered with a control TCR. And this treatment was only for 48 hours because we knew that our TCR is very efficient so that it could actually kill leukemia cells in, in that short period. And then we took the whole co-culture and we transplanted it to the mice. Then we could follow up the mice for a long time because there were so few T cells in that co-culture that those would disappear after a short while in the mice. And we actually followed the mice for seven months. That was quite exciting, actually, to, to then see in which mice would the leukemia cells come back, would they engraft. And uh, we were, of course, super excited to see that the leukemia cells engrafted only in the mice that were treated with the controlled TCR-engineered uh, T-cells or were not treated with T-cells at all. So none of the mice that in vitro were treated with the FLT3-TCR T-cells engrafted during the, week, the course of those 28 weeks. And these are, these are immunodeficient mice, so you just want to keep them as clean as possible for seven months. <laughs> exactly. This one essential model. And then there were three additional models, and, and one of them was testing what if we have full-blown leukemia, very aggressive, which you often see in patients. Are we then capable of, in such a situation, actually to get rid of the leukemia cells? And we could demonstrate that very nicely, that we could eradicate the mutated leukemia cells. And we tested it by uh, looking with DDPCR for the mutation at the time point when we stopped uh, the experiment, which was only around two weeks after treating the mice. And the other situation was then, so two different uh, PDX models here, one that was CD34 positive and one that was CD34 negative, which is also then something that is, is reflective of uh, the patient situation. And then the third model was a situation with so-called minimal residual disease. So you have only a few cells hiding in the bone marrow, and you really want to target those. And we could demonstrate that, yes, indeed, we could get rid of also those leukemia cells. I think that's a really important point, because I know in AML, for a lot of therapies, it can be quite tricky to target and, and sort of hit the cancer cells that are residing in the bone marrow. So, but in your paper, you elegantly show that your FLT3 TCR is actually able to, to target cells here and, and sort of and, and infiltrate that environment, right? Which can be can be tricky as well, I know, for, for T cells to sort of work in. So uh, this paper is called a T uh, cell receptor targeting a recurrent driver mutation in FLT3 mediates elimination of primary human acute myeloid leukemia in vivo. And the, the first author, and I really, really hope I can pronounce this correctly, is Irini Gigiana Kukukukulau, and it was published recently <laughs> in the Nature Cancer. Sorry, I should let you like actually say the first author's <laughs> name. Sorry. So the first author's name is Irini I apologize to Irini. I will definitely give her uh, some chocolate the next time I see her. Okay, I'd like to zoom out a bit now and ask you some more general questions, because I think we've talked about like, what neoengines are, what TCRs are, how you guys have developed these very nice methods to actually find TCRs that can use to, to target these uh, cancer mutations. And I want to ask you, so why TCRs? There's many other approaches, as Morton said in the beginning. So what was the reason for going with this? When it comes to CAR T-cell therapy, that has been a tremendous success in the treatment of B-cell uh, malignancies, and it definitely shows what T-cells can do and, and what they how they can cure cancer. That has been an incredible encouragement for the whole field. But after more than 10 years of CD19 CAR T-cells, there are very few other targets out there. And the majority of the other targets are also in B-cell malignancies. So that demonstrates that it has been very difficult to identify good CAR targets. And the main reason is actually what I also mentioned earlier, that we can do well without normal B-cells for years, but we cannot do well without normal T-cells myelin cells, liver cells, and I could go on. It has proven very challenging to identify cell type specific cell surface antigens that can be safely targeted because CARs are restricted to recognition of cell surface antigens or proteins. And the current targets of CARs 
are not tumor specific, they're cell type specific. This is where uh, TCRs could provide or can provide an opportunity because they are not restricted to recognition of cell surface antigens. They can recognize their targets, their peptide targets from proteins with, in principle, any subcellular location. More than 80% of our proteins are inside the cell. That's why you have a vast universe of targets that are unexplored so far. And uh, this is where we think that T-cell receptors can really provide a fantastic opportunity and also an opportunity then with neoantigens to go after truly tumor-specific uh, targets. And other characteristic of T-cell receptors as compared with CARs is that they can recognize their targets with a much higher degree of sensitivity. There's actually hundredfold difference. So uh, that is also uh, something that could then um, limit the risk of tumor escape. You can get a recognition of the tumor target with a much higher sensitivity. Yeah, so even if the protein is expressed at lower levels, I guess, like a, 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 a peptide that's presented on HLA is, is more recognizable to a T-cell. So that's also why there are now strategies to try to make the cars more like uh, TCRs. Yeah, yes. I think that's that's a really interesting research avenue. I don't say that just because I'm also working on that myself. <laughs> but, but I think you're right. I think there's a lot of focus now in trying to actually emulate how normal TCR interact and in sort of in these artificial receptors that we're making, right? Okay, so I think that's a good segue into sort of asking where, where you see TCR-based therapies in, in a few years' time. I mean, if you all your wildest dreams came through, which type of cancers would you go for? Where do you think this should be pushed into the clinic? Yes, I mean, the T-cell receptor field is really in its infancy. We did a PubMed search a few months ago and that identified 26 uh, full-text articles describing 24 unique phase one and or two trials, treating altogether 356 patients. This is very, very little as compared with CAR T-cell trials. We've just begun, I think. And of course, you can foresee combining multiple T-cell receptors, recognizing different targets to, to limit tumor escape. You can also foresee the possibility of combining it with other therapeutic modalities like, uh, of course, immune checkpoint inhibition. Yeah, there are really many opportunities, but cell therapy is a challenging field because of it's challenging to manufacture the cells and it's also costly. So we need to have development in multiple areas here for this to reach a wide number of patients. And I guess maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but I guess that's a really interesting point. Like, how do we actually, I think you've shown with these two papers, this is definitely diff interesting avenues to pursue in clinical trials as well. And so I guess it's the next step that's sort of really a hurdle to, to overcome, right? Because it's with other cellular therapies, as you say, there's a lot of regulatory work, but you also need to have sort of a, a clean lab to sort of make these therapies, right? Which is a bit different from some of the older therapies where maybe you didn't need to think so much about sort of that whole production side as well. Can you tell us a bit about like how you're trying to bring, for example, your novel TCRs into the clinic? Absolutely. So this is a frustrating journey, I have to say. And in many ways, I would wish that I could just hand over my TCRs to someone who's taking them into the clinic, but that's not the way it happens because it's a new area. Cell therapy is still actually a, a young therapeutic or young field therapeutically, I would say. When we wanted then to translate one of our first TCRs, the TDT TCR, into the clinic, we had first to find someone who could produce a virus that would allow then the, the gene encoding for the TCR to be transferred to the T-cells of the patient. And that is costly. And it's something that has to be done, of course, in a GMP fashion so that can be used clinically. And then the next thing is to uh, develop a process for how to transfer the gene to the T-cells. That was when I was realizing that we didn't have these opportunities in uh, Norway. We were actually very lucky that uh, we got in touch with private donor consortium, including the Norwegian Cancer Society, Svanil Anonymous Foundation and Radforsk, that were enthusiastic about the idea that we should start a center where T-cell gene-modified T-cells uh, and uh, maybe NK cells, other cells, can be manufactured. So that was the, the beginning. We, we then they got them on board and they have uh, actually committed to up to 5 million euros, comparably, to a center for 
cell and gene therapy in Oslo. So that has been established. It's it's quite recent. Uh, we we got the director on a Posetto uh, a year ago in the center, and now uh, things are are on its way then for uh, being able to produce gene modified T cells also in uh, in Oslo. But uh, yeah, it's a long uh, and complicated uh, journey, and it's also of course costly. We then uh, first we got to hear that in order to finance something like that, you have to start a company. That's what everyone said, honestly. And so I thought that that was what I had to do. But then uh, we managed to get funding. And then this was in collaboration with the people here in Oslo. And the PI for the clinical trial will be Jochen Bichner, who is a senior physician at Rikshospitalet. And he got funding with um, with some of us as um, co-PIs for then a clinical trial in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, TALL and BLL, relapsed refractory TALL and BLL. So that is uh, something that we're very excited about, and we hope to start treating the first patients in not too long. That's really interesting. And yeah, I, I mean, I know it's a huge hurdle to overcome, right, just to be able to treat the first patient. But, but hopefully once you reach that, then the next one will become easier. But I want to ask you, what are you, what, what, what do you sort of think some of the challenges of using these TC, the TCR-based therapies are? I think you rightly pointed out all the, the good things, but I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about what, once we start using them, what we should think about sort of safety wise. As Joanna has mentioned uh, several times now is that, you know, uh, the target has to be either exclusively expressed by the cancer cells. Or it's or only expressed in healthy cells that we can live without for a certain period of time. So I think that's the bit, one of the uh, like big big hurdles. First of all, but then of course if we said, then say that we have uh, identified, for instance, the the TDT TCR, right? Then of course uh, another big concern would be cross reactivity uh, to other peptides presented on the same HLA or even other HLA molecules that we that we haven't you know tested for in our in vitro systems. So actually recently uh, our group published a paper in NPG uh, in PJ vaccines. Uh, first author there is Sofia Folvari. And actually, so that paper, we actually built a, a pipeline uh, for testing, preclinical pre testing of TCRs before you would go into the clinic with them. And there we offer sort of a five, six step, I don't know, I don't know if the right word is solution, but five, six, uh, five, six step method of what, at what you at least should do and what you can do because of course it is not possible to test everything in vitro for what what, what should be tested. And there, and there, of course, one of the things would be the mimotope assay. So we take the epitope that is recognized by the TCR and then we, I would almost said painstakingly, you know, switch out each amino acid position for every naturally occurring amino acid testing if there's any sort of cross-reactivity to any peptide. If we, When we don't get that info, we don't uh, cross-check that to a database reference for the whole human proteome to sort of see if we can see if there are any proteins with that sequence in the whole human proteome. If they are there, we then test TCR reactivity to those, not only as peptides, because that we know that they react to based on the mimotope assay, but then we also synthesize short uh, mini genes with the target only flanking, you know, with the, perhaps the 15 or 30 amino acids on either side. That's super important because we have seen that processing and presentation, just because you see processing and presentation of, of an epitope coming from a mini gene where you do not encode the full length protein, doesn't mean that you, see, get, you get the epitope presented if you have the full length. So that means that some of your off-target hits might not be you know, uh, validated or you, they might not be of concern because basically they are not presented. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. And so you do this for all the TCRs that you sort of test? We do. We do. So it's a lot of work just doing that. We feel necessary. Okay. Yeah. It's clear that you guys have thought very hard and long about sort of how to do this, not only just show it sort of as a proof principle, but actually go through all the effort of doing it in all these different mouse models to show the clinical effect, but also doing all these sort of safety steps. I think that's really precious. Johanna, I wanted to, you talked about before about sort of ways of bringing these therapies, not only from being used in mice, but also to the sort of be used in the clinic. What's sort of your motivation for all this work? So I think we have to realize that it's very difficult to find the, the treatment that is one size fits all. So we need to identify therapies that can be used in subgroups of patients, not as small as one patient. It should be subgroups of patients, otherwise it would probably be too costly. But many, I'm sure, effective therapies will not be applicable to huge patient groups. And then they might not be attractive enough for 
big pharma to take the risk of going through all the steps that you need in order to get them out to the market. And I therefore think it is very important that the public is taking responsibility here, that the governments is supporting that we can test new therapeutic concepts quickly and in an academic setting to find out if this is something that is worthwhile taking on to develop into a product that can be on the market. I think a lot of this has to happen in the academic setting. Otherwise, there are so many good ideas that will just end up in the door and a lot of patients will never get effective therapies that could have been developed. So that is really a, an important thing for me and why I think also that uh, the production of cells for therapy at an early stage at should be done academically also so that we can have knowledge sharing because the problem is that if everything is developed in companies then there is very limited knowledge sharing so i think that is really a something that is close to my heart okay so finally i want to i want to congratulate you and your team on, on being selected as, as a finalist for this cancer grand challenges uh, competition which is a it's a global competition hosted by cancer research uk and uh, the National Cancer Institute, the NCI in the U.S. Um, just briefly, can you tell us what the what sort of the project is about and, and what, what you guys are planning to do? It's, uh, it's really super exciting. And actually, the final application was uh, submitted yesterday. What was it? 150 pages or something like that. So it was a, it's, a, it's a huge application. And both Morten and I are super excited that we have been invited, uh, our group, onto a really fantastic uh, team. It's called the Matchmakers Team, and it's uh, consistent of 12 different research groups. Some are in uh, UK, the Netherlands, US, and then Norway. And uh, the, the matchmaking is actually between T-cell receptors and their targets. So I think I mentioned in the beginning that if we look at the T-cells that actually do the job in cancer immunotherapy, for instance, checkpoint inhibition, we don't know what the large majority of those T-cells recognize. And uh, so as I mentioned, neoantigens are only to, to a limited degree recognized. And the large majority of the T-cells that actually kill the cancer cells, we don't know what they see. So actually the, the dream of this uh, team is then to be able from a T-cell receptor sequence to tell what is the target of that T-cell receptor. And if we were able to do that, to decipher the so-called T-cell receptor peptide MHC code, well, that would open completely new uh, possibilities in cancer immunotherapy. So then one could foresee that you can take uh, T-cells from the patient, find out what they are responding to, vice versa. If you identify a really good target, well, you could just design a T-cell receptor that is recognizing this target well, and that is also safe. So it's really a very, very ambitious goal. And there are so many novel and, and uh, cool technologies that are amongst these different uh, groups that we will then uh, get access to. Um, and we really can't wait to hopefully get started on this collaboration. And it's going to be a really a, quite, quite of a journey if we then get this grant. That, that sounds like an amazing project, hard, but extremely potent if you could sort of make headway into that direction, right? Because I guess that would allow for almost sort of designing a TCR on your computer once you sort of sequence the, the patient's cancer genome, for example. Or, exactly. or okay, that, that, thank you so much for, for telling about that. And I wish you the best of luck. I'm happy I talked to you today after you sort of submitted. We're going we're gonna to call the first uh, TCR Morton, yes. right? Yes. Really? Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, Morten, are you are you sort of a, a keen killer of cancer cells? Is that the reason? Yeah, that's probably why. Yeah, that's probably why. <laughs> you do look a bit. People can't see this, but you do look a bit fierce. I am very. But you know, I yeah. Well, T cells, I, I often think of them as sort of rounded agents. They need to sort of, they, they see both sort of like the, the hard side of life, but they also, you know, they also are, they also need to not go too crazy. And so they, they need to be sort of balanced, you know. So I think that's a good characteristic to have as a person as well. Thank you both so much for all your time. I know we've gone way over, but I'm really happy about this discussion. I, I've learned a lot. To our listeners, if you enjoyed listening to this, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, rate us and tell your friends. And with that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.